we had assembled all of these amazing tests and all of these incredible samples, which at the time was half of all of the con- of, of the COVID-19 cases in uh, San Francisco. Um, and we got incredible support from uh, the Department of Experimental Medicine at SF General Hospital in order to be able to do this testing and, and ask for help because we really needed to do a lot of testing very quickly. And we just had this unbelievable crew of volunteers who churned through a, an astonishing amount of work in like no time at all. In the end, the actual testing process took us barely over a week. Um, and so we were able to do this whole study in under a month, really. Wow. Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and how you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Kate. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow UCSF scientists as well as non-scientist friends to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. Today, we're wrapping up our three-part mini-series about research into the novel SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, the causative agent of COVID-19. In our previous episodes, we look at the molecular intersection between virus and host and discuss how scientists can use this information to design therapies to fight SARS-CoV-2 infection. In our final episode of the miniseries, we shift gears to look at antibody testing and discuss an exciting new paper from UCSF scientists that will be published in an upcoming issue of Nature Biotechnology titled, Evaluation of SARS-CoV-2 Serology Assays Reveals a Range of Test Performance. In this article, scientists compare the performance of 12 different SARS-CoV-2 antibody tests and discuss the importance of standardizing clinical use and operator training. Today, we're going to discuss the paper and the consequences of its findings and how this information can inform public health moving forward. Helping me with this discussion are some of the first authors of the paper, Joe Hyatt, Jeff Whitman, and Cody Maurer. Hi, everyone. I'm Joe Hyatt. I'm a graduate student in the MD-PhD program here at UCSF. Uh, and I'm uh, in the lab of Alex Marson. We're also here representing uh, two other first authors who couldn't be here today, Brian Shai, an MD fellow, and Ruby Yu, a postdoc, both affiliated with the Marson Lab. Hi, uh, my name is Jeff Whitman. I'm a newly minted assistant clinical professor here at UCSF in the Department of Lab Medicine. And at the time that I started this project, I was actually finishing up my postdoc. Hi, I'm Cody Mowry. Um, I'm also an MD-PhD student here at UCSF, and I'm co-mentored by Alex Marson and Jimmy Yi. And joining us and making sure that we stay on point will be non-scientists, expert humans, Jacqueline and Lauren. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Fabius. I'm the Chief Operating Officer for the Quantitative Biosciences Institute, QBI, and my background is in operations. I'm not a scientist at all. Hi, I'm Lauren Weiser. Until recently, I was an administrative assistant um, at the Gladstone Institute and UCSF, and I am now a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University studying public policy. Okay, thanks. Let's get started. So today we're going to talk about antibodies and antibody testing. Uh, and there's a lot of different types of tests uh, and reports in the news about uh, testing and testing accuracy. It can be really confusing to try and understand. So Jacqueline and Lauren, um, since you are our kind of non-scientist guests, um, before we get into some of the details of this paper, uh, maybe it would be good to just gauge how much we all know about antibodies. Um, So can you uh, each weigh in on like, what do you think an antibody is? Lauren, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean... (laughs) um... 
when I think of it, I always think of, you know, a lot of people get uh, mono in high school and supposedly you get antibodies and so you only get it once, but then but then later it was like, maybe that's not true. I don't know about mono. Um, but that was like the first encounter I had with it. Um, and in terms of the coronavirus, it seemed like one of the, one of the main things people were trying to figure out early on was if, if that happens, if you can get it more at once and somehow that relates to antibodies and what kind of antibodies you get after having the virus. Mm, so I think my understanding of an antibody is something that happens within the cell once you've had a virus, for example. So your cell would have gone through the virus and would have developed a mechanism to recognize it and fight it off. And that's what remains. And your antibodies would then be these entities that would recognize the next time the virus comes in and fights it off. This is one of my favorite <laughs> analogies in biology. The antibodies are, are your immune system's air force. They're the jet fighters that are scrambled from the the uh, B cells, which are basically your aircraft carriers in the, the immune system. And then they can patrol your bloodstream and fly all around looking for a specific target. Um, so it's exactly what you guys said, right? They're, they're, um, they're specific targeting missiles that are looking for a, a one target and they patrol the bloodstream trying to make sure, especially that you don't get reinfected by a, a pathogen that you've seen before. Um, and we're going to talk about two different kinds of antibodies. Um, there's uh, a, a couple of different flavors, but the two that are relevant here are IgM and IgG. Uh, and basically, IgM are the very first fighters that come out. They don't really know what they're looking for. They're a little less sophisticated, and so they hang out in groups. You'll, you'll get five of them together, and actually, if you look at them, uh, their molecular structure, they're these beautiful star shapes. Um, and that's because they're not quite as good at recognizing the target. So they hang out together so that they can work together to, uh, to destroy their target, the virus in this case. Uh, and they're really an early response because once you get the more sophisticated planes, these IgG antibodies, then just one of them is good enough to fly around in the bloodstream and do surveillance on its own. Um, but so that's that's the way I think of them. These are these are your immune system's way of looking for specific targets and neutralizing them, and they're flying around through the bloodstream doing surveillance all over the place. Joe, later on, will you be breaking down what IgM and IgG means? Uh, I mean, it's yes. I, I should have just said <laughs> immunoglobulin type G and immunoglobulin type M. I don't know if G and M even stand for anything. Jeff or Cody, do you guys know? There's like five, right? There's like yeah, IgG. there's five. They're all like weird <laughs> antiquated things. But in in testing conversations, not just this one, you'll hear people talk about IgM and IgG sometimes. And so, if you want a sort of a shortcut method, IgM is what happens immediately when you're infected. So really short term after the first infection, and then that goes away. IgG takes a little longer. These are the more specific, the better planes, but then they're, they're gonna keep doing surveillance in your bloodstream for a much longer period of time. Going along with your military analogy, so the, the IgM are just out of boot camp, and the IgG are highly trained commandos. They're the Green Berets out there. The IgG can get more trained over time, so they can actually become higher affinity over time. Um, this is Lauren. I have a question. Um, so Joe, you, I mean, you, you went over it, but just to clarify, um, are antibodies, so are they things that your body already has, or is it a reaction to a specific virus or disease or whatever? Um, 
So let's to, to use Jeff's sort of out of boot camp analogy, there's there's a bunch of grunt antibodies that are sticking around sort of on the on the B cell on the battleship getting ready to be deployed. But then when a, a new challenger shows up, a new virus, a new pathogen shows up, the body has a really sophisticated way of actually matching it with the best grunt for the job and finding the, the sort of the vanilla antibody that looks like it could do the best job. And then, as Jeff was saying, really trains it up to become specific for this one task. And so the answer is kind of both of those things, that um, the, the sort of vanilla antibody template was there already. And, it, and then it, in response to the virus or the bacteria or whatever it's targeting, it becomes a, a one pathogen killing machine. If this is confusing to you, you're not alone. Um, Ed Yong is a really famous science writer for The Atlantic, and he has an article that he recently published called Immunology is Where Intuition Goes to Die. And so um, these things are just all interconnected parts of this very complex system with a lot of things that professional immunologists don't quite understand. And that's job security for all of us. Um, <laughs> but I think the, the analogies hopefully help, uh, help understand where things are going. They're helping a lot so far. Great. And maybe along that lines, you can talk about, um, yeah, so how the body remembers a pathogen. So um, how if you were to be reinfected, your body can still mount a defense against that pathogen again. Who wants to take that one? <laughs> I know. I was going to say, should I name someone to do it? I mean, briefly, like using using the same analogy, if we have airplanes, um, you can imagine big armadas of, of aircraft carriers that go out when you're actively infected by SARS-CoV-2. And, and eventually you don't need that whole armada. You might just need one of those ships to kind of keep things going at a steady state. And so you get rid of the rest of the ships, but that one hangs around. And so the next time... Um, you see SARS-CoV-2 SARS again, you can kind of call its armada friends and recruit more of these ships back to help send off these airplanes, and then those airplanes will go and, and do their thing. So um, it's, it's this expansion and contraction of uh, a virus-specific immune response that's really critical. And a lot of that specifically for, for the novel coronavirus is yet to be definitively determined. But that's kind of the general idea, the general basis of long-term immunity. Yeah. And so on a molecular level, an antibody is a, a protein, a type of molecule in, in your body that your cells produce. Um, so when people are talking about antibody tests and antibody testing, what are they actually measuring? Are they measuring, you know, protein levels? What, you know, what is actually an antibody test? I'll, um, I'll jump in on that one. So antibody tests are really a way that you can measure if a person has been exposed to um, some sort of offending agent. In these cases, it would be SARS-CoV-2 um, by seeing if they mounted an immune response. You shouldn't mount an immune response or produce antibodies unless you've been exposed. So the way you do that is you find the parts of the infectious agent um, that would mount this antibody response. So scientists have done this. Um, and you can affix them to different diagnostic kits in, in many different ways that we just won't go into. Um, but the whole goal is to catch antibodies if they exist in the patient's blood. Um, so in that case, um, you can take a patient's serum, which is a component of their blood that contains antibodies and, bunch, um, and a bunch of other things. And if you wash it over 
these antigens or these parts of the virus that are there, they should stick. And then you could measure if those antibodies are there, be it IgG or IgM. So before we probably get deeper into antibodies, uh, I know there are multiple kinds of COVID tests. Um, and so what I was just wondering, could someone give like a brief overview of the difference um, and I guess maybe why we're looking more into antibody tests? Sure. So briefly... I mean, the, the two big arms of, of COVID testing right now are these molecular tests, um, and those have really kind of dominated the market. And if you just went out to downtown San Francisco tomorrow and got a COVID test, there's probably a 98% chance that it would be one of these molecular tests. And so they stick this swab up in your mouth and or in your nose and hold it there um, long enough to be very uncomfortable. I started crying, like tearing, just without control over my body. Um, and it, they take the swab and then they start doing some lab techniques to detect whether or not they're detecting pieces of the virus, um, pieces of viral RNA in this case. Um, and whether or not you have that RNA determines whether or not you're actively infected. Um, so I think the important thing to know for molecular tests is that it's really a snapshot of your infection status at that given moment. Um, you either have virus in your nose or in your mouth at that time at enough levels to where you can, with the swab, pull out some of the RNA and detect it in a lab, or you don't. You either have lower levels below detection, or the swab didn't hit you in the right place, or you just aren't infected. Um, one of the really... Uh, uh, really important things to know about the antibody test is that, you know, we're talking about this lasting immunity. Um, you're no longer looking at a snapshot of your infection status right now. You're looking at whether you've been exposed to this novel coronavirus in the past. And so um, there's still a lot of unanswered questions about how long exactly um, the antibodies stick around at detectable levels and all of that. And, and so um, I don't want to give away um, any ideas that it lasts forever and that we can detect it forever, but um, but as long as you're kind of after this waiting period that your body needs to ramp up and, and generate enough of these antibodies, again, for to hit this limit of detection, um, you're determining whether or not this person has been exposed to the, the virus in the past and has mounted an effective antibody response to, to the virus. Thanks. Um, then, so I just wanted to say that start, Lauren's question about the different kinds of testing is a great jumping off point for our story because the yes. the story of testing really starts with the molecular tests that Cody described, right? These tests that says, is the person that I just swabbed infected now or not? And um, there's been a, a lot of reporting about uh, some of the struggles in the U.S. to get that molecular testing going. Um and there seem to be a lot of root causes, but one of which is that uh, the federal government decided they wanted to take a really centralized approach to this, that they wanted to say, um, we're going to make sure we get the test right. We're going to make sure we get it perfect. So we're going to do it all ourselves. And when it's absolutely right, we're going to distribute it all across the country. Um, and uh, as I think we all know at this point, that uh, approach had some flaws. It really wasn't perfect for quite some time, despite really excellent scientists working on it. Um, and 
And so then the, the sort of the second wave of testing de development was these antibody tests that we were going to be talking about. And so that sort of really sets the stage for where we came in, because having learned from the experience of developing these molecular tests, the, uh, the federal government, meaning especially in this case, the FDA said, these are important tests. We know that there are smart people making them. We don't want to limit access to these tests in the way that we inadvertently did um, in, in the case of these molecular tests. So we're going to take the exact opposite approach. We're just going to say anybody who's made a test uh, and wants to sell it can sell it, but they have to say uh, it's not approved by the FDA. They have to do their own testing, um, and they have to say that they did their own testing. And, and that, you know, it put these companies in a real bind also. But at the time that, that we're talking about, this is March, there just aren't that many samples around of blood from folks who are SARS-CoV-2 positive. So in, in order to, to validate your own test, you kind of have to get these samples that don't exist. But these tests are also important and were needed on the market. And so a lot of folks sort of had to make a calculation that said, well, we have a test that we think should work. And in our limited ability to test seems to work. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and do exactly what the, the FDA said we should do, which is offer this test for sale and do our best to validate it and just be honest about the fact that really this has not been validated in the way that probably a serology test should be. Although, it, yeah, I, I mean, it's a little bit like you touch something and it was too hot, so you just threw ice on it, like not necessarily the right reaction. Um, a lot of people who have taken the antibody tests that are maybe not as accurate as they assumed they were then think that they are uh, either have never been infected or if they have antibodies, think that they're almost like uh, superheroes, that they don't need to be cautious anymore. So there's the two tests test different things and positive and negative mean different things from each test. And I think there's a danger in having inaccuracies in both, but they're not the same danger. Totally. And, and that was really our thought is like, okay, on the one hand, we really appreciate that, um, that the FDA doesn't want to limit access to these tests. On the other hand, we were starting to see ads on, you know, Instagram for pay a hundred dollars yeah. and get this antibody test shipped to your door. And that's a, a really scary thing when none of these things are validated. Um, and so, uh, Alex Marson, who's, uh, Cody and my PI, and a, a number of other folks, including uh, Karen Byrne here at U UCSF and Patrick Sue at Berkeley and Joe DeRisi and, and uh, Peter Kim at the Biohub said, OK, like these tests are important, but it's really scary that anybody can just buy one that hasn't been FDA tested. Somebody should really do something about that. Um, and, and so that's sort of where we decided to see if we could help um, assess how good these tests were. Right, so maybe we can then take a jump over to the paper. Um, so in the three of you, Jeff, Cody, and Joe, uh, in your paper, you guys are looking at 12 different types of antibody tests, two which were I, kind of more standard, I guess, I, I, the ELISA assay, and then 10 which are lateral flow assays. 
Am I getting that what, correct? What does that mean, lateral flow? What is that Kind of like a pregnancy test, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, yeah, maybe uh, can you talk to us about how you picked these 12 tests and, you know, kind of um, how you went about testing them? <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so... Uh, as Joe had said, I, I, I'm mentored by Alex Marson at UCSF, and and he had stepped up to kind of meet this unmet need of validating these antibody tests. And so, um, at lab meeting one day, he and Joe had announced that this is something that the lab was gonna start doing. And uh, those of us who were foolish enough to volunteer volunteered, and uh, there went six to eight weeks of my life. Um, <laughs> It, it was it just was immediately this this mad scramble to um, get our hands on as many tests as possible. And so um, we were going off of a kind of database that we found online of all these vendors listed um, and just started frantically emailing and calling folks um, nonstop for really a few weeks. Um, and it was, it was a mix of things at the time that we were pursuing. We weren't just pursuing the ELISAs, which are um, more of a laboratory test. You would take samples into a laboratory, you would distribute them into this plate. So you'd have many samples that you're testing at the same time and you need specialized equipment to test. Um, that wasn't necessarily a focus. We also weren't necessarily focusing on the lateral flow assays, which are these point of care style tests. Like, um, like Robin had said, it's similar to a pregnancy test. You apply a sample to a certain region and then there's a band that shows up or doesn't. Um, we just wanted to get our hands on as many of these immunoassays as possible, basically uh, antibody tests broadly defined in whatever um, style or, or format they came in. And so, um, yeah, we, you, we were, go ahead. Uh, did you, uh, were the companies all pretty eager to have you guys testing? Did you tell them like, hey, we're going to see how good you are? <laughs> <laughs> or yeah no that's a good question um it was certainly a mix of responses a lot of people were really eager a lot of people mentioned what um joe and jeff had mentioned before that there just weren't a lot of samples available that were validated that were from confirmed infected patients so these i i would say that for the most part people were genuinely interested in making the best product as possible there weren't many um, if, if any at all, like profiteers that were just out to kind of take advantage of this situation. Um, that being said, you know, we, we wanted to be upfront or as, um, as upfront as possible. And so we sent out a letter saying that this is what we're doing. Here's kind of where our funding is coming from. Um, here's our overall intention. Here's our plan to distribute the information and share the data publicly. And that certainly dissuaded some people. And, and um, I can't really hold that against them. You know, if you're the CEO of a company and you're trying to profit um, off of this test and, and not maliciously, but you want to make a, as good a test as possible, but you also don't want to do something that's going to harm your business. Um, uh, that might be something that gives you a little pause. And, and this was also early enough in the pandemic, especially in the, in the US where companies were rapidly developing these tests. So we got tests from a lot of companies and we've heard from them since that have said like, you know, like that was a good service that you all provided, but, um, but that was maybe version one and we're at version 50 now, you know? And so these things were iterating really quick and we did the best we can and companies were doing the best that they could, but we ended up getting our hands on, on 12 tests and that's what we went with for, for this round. 
the way the way I think about these two, because I've done a, a number of um, test performance studies, um, is is that is that one? Yes, it it is um, it is nerve wracking both for the person testing because you you are trying to very, be very unbiased about this and making make sure that everything you're doing is super standardized, um, and you're, it's also must be nerve wracking for the companies to give it out, um, give out their test and really put it out there in the field. Um, and see how it works. Um, but I think it's just a really good open forum. That's the way I've been saying it, is this is an open forum. This is sort of like we we are providing a unbiased area for people to test their tests out. And we do share the data openly, um, again, with sort of protections, you know, for um, human subjects research, but the aggregate data and the data regarding the tests, we, we share openly. So it, it can be this sort of nerve wracking space to be in, um, but is, overall a positive for all I, I feel it's a positive for all parties because even if you get some sort of negative response you know that that's an area of improvement or an area that you know oh in this you know in a real world scenario maybe we have to look at adjusting our cutoff or, or something like that and Cody Jeff Joe maybe one of you could uh, say how many of these are actually being used in the clinical setting and are being or either were at the time being used or are currently being used do you know? So that's a good question. You can go to the FDA and see which antibody tests are EUA approved. So there's vendors that, that once you get EUA approval, um, you can market it as sort of a clinical diagnostic test. Um, and people can get them and test them out. That being said, I don't know. Um, I, sh I could potentially talk to more of my peers, but I actually don't know how many are, how many and how how many are being used and how widely they are being used. There's also um, a lot of um, debate right now about what is the utility of antibody testing um, and what does it actually mean. And I'll, even though you can set it up clinically and, and um, validate it as a clinical test, um, the actual recommendations for using it for diagnosis really haven't met that need yet. A lot of um, organizations and, and, you know, uh, government governmental bodies have come out and said, you know, really actually using this as a clinical test and especially alone as a clinical test may not be advised. So, it's kind of a it's kind of a an iffy an iffy subject there about how widely they're being used. Um, as we were getting our hands on a lot of these tests, we were being contacted by various kind of governmental or medical center level um, groups that were interested in the results of our study because they were assessing which tests to bring in to their county, their state, their medical center. So we know at least one was actively deploying one of the tests that we uh, evaluated. Um, but we had these calls set up with folks kind of in the governor's office in California and even people here at UCSF that were actively deciding like which, if any of these tests do we want to bring in and, and implement either for kind of staffing testing or patient testing or whatever else. And, and so there's a lot of interest. There continues to be a lot of interest. Um, I think for exactly the reasons that Jeff had said, you know, the what to do with it still isn't entirely clear. You know, people have good ideas, but um, there isn't policy set in stone. And so it, it gets a little messy for sure. I think early on too, with a lot of the conversations that were happening, um, kind of as you mentioned, Cody, there, there was like, it was, could this replace 
or could this be could this replace the molecular testing could this replace the nasal swabs um because that was on the table especially in, in the setting of we don't have enough tests we don't have enough capacity is this another um testing modality we can use instead of this um and the way it panned out is that that wasn't the case there's like there still is utility to these tests. It's just in what setting do you actually use them? And and the upfront direct test that hasn't been replaced has been the nasal swab, oral pharyngeal swab, and now maybe saliva um, molecular tests. This is also the time when people were talking about immunity passports, the idea yeah. that if you had antibodies, you'd be protected. And so this test was the cure to getting out of the stay-at-home orders, is, is what we were all hoping, that a positive antibody test would mean I'm immune and I can go back to my daily life. And, and uh, of course, you know, several months later, we know that it's not that simple. Uh, but, but that was definitely the hope at the time when we were first starting this. How did you go about testing these 12, or let's call them kits, I suppose? Did you have cohorts of people that you were testing them on or blood samples? Or, you know, how did you go about assessing how accurate each one was to make a call? Jeff, as a lab scientist, has been waiting so anxiously for this question. <laughs> um, so the the way you do that is you do want to have um, authentic patient specimens, people who have been exposed to the virus or who have you know COVID nineteen. Um, you can't always you don't always know if they've had if they have an antibody response yet, um, but you can at least identify patients who were um, who tested positive for you know viral RNA. Um, and so under research protocols, we wrote an IRB that went through ethical protections um, to say that we could uh, collect remnant specimens. So specimens that were ordered for routine testing, um, but before they're thrown out, you can um, save them and then use them as a cohort for testing these studies. So the, the big thing here is that people were getting nasal swabs, but if they're getting a nasal swab and a blood draw at the same time, you could identify the patients who had the blood draw um, for another reason, but also happen to have a um, a positive molecular test from their from their nasal swab. Because you guys took also uh, samples from before the pandemic as well as your negative controls. Is that correct? Correct. So um, the American Red Cross um, has uh, was was our collaborator in this study where they had negative specimens um, that were before the pandemic happened. So no one should have been exposed. Therefore, no antibody should have existed that you could have captured. So it was a, it was sort of a, um, a great specimen set to use that was almost guaranteed, you know, is guaranteed to be a negative just because there is no way it could have possibly existed at that time. Um, so those are the kind of two specimen sets that we use to, to derive our test performance characteristics. We knew which tests were, were from patients that were presumed positive for the virus, and we knew which were from patients from 2020 and 2019 that were negative, and then from before 2018 um, that were negative, but we weren't testing all the positive specimens and saying that this one should be positive, how does it look? You know, we went through, we had all of these things, we randomized them, that was the very first thing that Joe, Jeff, and I did um, as we were starting the, the actual testing portion of the project. And so then we had everything basically anonymized on these plates and, and we recruited a bunch of other volunteers to come into the lab and actually do the testing to distance ourselves from the data collection. Um, even though I certainly didn't remember what went where and which position had positive and negative. 
and then after the fact, after we had all the data, you know, it's on the computer side of things where we start re-identifying samples and saying, well, this came from a patient that we thought was positive. How does it look on these different tests? And so, um, yes, we had this really awesome and, and really valuable um, specimen set. We kind of ignored all that information when we tested it, and then we brought it back and had the reference to compare it to. So uh, kind of along those lines, um, in terms of how you guys were actually testing them, um, you uh, had, I think, two different readers for each of your tests, and you ended up thinking of kind of a very uh, interesting way of testing as opposed to just positive or negative. You added a quantitative value. Uh, would one of you want to talk about kind of why you ended up coming up with this quantitative assessment of you know, positive and negative? The, yeah, so, so the, the quantitative analysis of the lateral flow assays was actually from a previous study we did. I'm sorry, just a quick interjection, because we had talked about the lateral flow, and I believe Robin said it was like a pregnancy test. Does that mean it's something you pee on? No. Not there in are... that regard. <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Well, flow, so what, what uh, exactly is lateral? It looks the same, and it uses similar principles, right, where uh, like your body fluid goes in one spot and then um, kind of like when you get your pants like your jeans go in a puddle and you think your jean only hit like an inch of water and then it just kind of goes all the way to your knee that's like lateral flow. Okay. so like you put a little bit of the body fluid somewhere and then it just goes all the way across the whole thing okay um, and like a pregnancy test there's a line that shows up or doesn't yeah. Uh, to tell you you're positive or negative, but as Jeff's going to tell us, the the line can be a little bit positive or very positive, and it turns out that's okay. important. All right, sorry to have interjected. No, no worries. That, I mean, that's a good makes a lot of sense. Yeah, good segue. Yeah. And so yeah, pretty much you. Um, so for these lateral flow tests, where you put any pretty much the body fluid that you want to find the thing you're looking for. In this case, it's antibodies. We want to look for antibodies, and those should be in the serum or plasma. We can put those on the lateral flow assay. They diffuse across it, just like water creeping up your genes when you step in a puddle. Um, and if the antibodies were there, along that strip, someone has printed um, proteins from the virus, the, the antigenic proteins. And, if, and your antibodies flowing across them will stick if they're there. You can then have some sort of color metric readout. There's, there's different ways to produce color depending on the type of antibody that's there. But pretty much if an antibody stuck there from the patient's serum, a, a band will show up. But that band is going to be darker or lighter depending on how many antibodies are there. And so when you read these, these test kits, um, pretty much how all of them say you, they should be read is if any band is there, this is a positive test. But that's subjective. And as, as someone from another clinical laboratory said, it's almost like an eye test. Like if you're staring at this thing and it's a very faint band, you're like, is that a real band? Is that a faint band? Well, it says there's any band present. So it's really important to kind of understand, you know, what, what's a positive. So we decided to call any band that we saw positive, but we wanted to give some extra quantitative value to this band, how intense the color was. Um, and that actually came from a scale. Um, there was, on a previous study we did, we decided that we could um, quantify the, dent the darkness of the band on a one to six color scale. And this was actually shared with us from a, um, a postdoc from Johns Hopkins um, who was doing this out in the field. So I won't take credit for it. Um, and 
based off of that, we decided that we would train the readers to look at this 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 band, seeing zero being no band there, one being a faint band, two being a slightly darker band, and we gave them a color scale. And training training readers to read this, could you identify uh, and 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 call out this this band color density? And we had two independent readers do it, and they didn't look at each other's scores just to confirm that there there could be some you know good correlation on calling this quantitative value. Should this quantitative value be used clinically? Like, oh, do you do you go to your doctor and say, oh, do I, is my band three plus? Is it one plus? Is it six plus? This is completely it, that's not the case. This is completely for research. We did this just to sort of capture some quantitative data about these assays. But if you were to if this test were to be used clinically or in sort of a like a, a public health or research setting, it would just be if any band is there, it's positive. So it's a, a qualitative test. Recording that information really helped us in the study because we ended up teaming up with a group at, at uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston who were doing a similar study looking at just a couple of tests in order to find one that they could use to do some serology to find out how many folks in different neighborhoods of Boston had already been infected with SARS-CoV-2. Um, and they uh, looked at one of the tests that we also looked at, a test from biomedomics, but they had had trained to score essentially what we call a one as negative. And so we ended up with really very different results for, for how, how uh, sensitive and, and effective this test is. Um, and, and it's not to say that either group was wrong, but it just shows that you have to really pay attention to the, the training and the reading of these tests. And so when eventually a, a third party at, at uh, the federal government tested it, the way their readers were tested was to look at these faint bands and call them positive. And so, in fact, this test uh, ended up not making the cut to be FDA approved later on. But it, it was a really, uh, for me, a really amazing and concrete example of how important it is to think about uh, the strength of the band and how you train the people to read them and what that would mean for somebody in the field who's never seen one of these before and is just opening the box and sort of paging through the, the inserted sheet and trying to figure out how am I supposed to use this test that I just ordered off of Instagram. Do you foresee a future? Well, first of all, I guess it's a two-part question. One, do we think this virus is here to stay indefinitely? And two, if that were to be the case, do you foresee a future where we are, in fact, ordering these kits off of Amazon and there is something so clear that you would know if you're infected or not? <laughs> oh, the big heavy size. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we could take a poll. Yeah. Which one of us thinks it's going to be around forever? <laughs> I think there's some debate. Uh -huh. I, I mean, I am not a virologist. I am not a vaccinologist. This, I'm the, the, my skill set is very far removed from all of this. I have a sense that it's here to stay, at least indefinitely. I think, at least my, if not assumption, my hope is that we'll have some vaccine that's deliverable to a large proportion of the population before I can go on Amazon and order a lateral flow assay for this. Um, just based on my findings, I, I think I'm uh hesitant to order a lateral flow assay from amazon but um but yeah i i really want to emphasize that that's not based on a ton of data other than just gut feelings i i think the the sort of um regulatory environment for ordering tests off amazon um is is not going to happen at least in the way people think um I, I just don't see that that happening as far as the regulation we have for clinical tests 
in the clinical laboratory. Um, that being said, there's a lot more direct consumer marketing of tests that have sort of infrastructure where, you know, a physician orders it, assesses your case, collections can be monitored, like they can be, you know, seen or done through video. So maybe there's, there's ways where there's more direct to consumer marketing, but I don't think it'll ever be direct to consumer. Well, it's, if it happens, it'll, it will be a lot of, a lot of regulations will have to be taken down. I just don't see that happening where there's truly direct-to-consumer testing. That's certainly an idea that people are big on right now, though. And and while we were doing the study, people were really excited about, especially once they started hearing about our quantitative or semi-quantitative scale. You know, a big idea is that, okay, so I'm a, a medical technology startup. I send you a lateral flow assay. You also download an app onto your phone and you put a piece of blood or a drop of blood on the on the test and then you aim your iPhone 11 whatever camera on it and your phone now tells you if you have a zero, a one, a two, a three, a four, a five, a six and we use that to kind of give this range of confidence and were you exposed, were you not exposed, are you converting from IgM to IgG from this early kind of weaker, non-specific response to this longer lasting, more robust response. Um, and so I think that's, that's again, it has the same caveats that Jeff had just said. I think the, the runway to direct to consumer testing isn't immediate, but that's something people are trying. It brings up a lot of n not just accuracy questions, but I think Jeff has been making this point and Joe, I mean, you all have been making this point of the use of the test and how much we actually know about the virus and how much we know about how our bodies respond to the virus. But in addition to that, how much you want to be having your medical information known by a company like Amazon or on your phone or shared. So there's a lot that also goes into whether or not something like this is going to be a test that you can just, you know, how much do we want our medical information to be uh, similar to how we have our social information? You, you know, the, the privacy of that is uh, something I think that needs to be taken into account as well. Yeah, I was wondering kind of what the consumer appeal, the, like the individual consumer appeal would be to buy these because you know, you have coronavirus, you get one, you do it, but like ultimately you're still going to have to go to a doctor and do one that's FDA approved. And, you know, it's not like, even if you're positive, it's not like you can suddenly get treatment. And I mean, some people obviously just want to know, but I don't know if there's many people who would pay $800 just to know if they were exposed to coronavirus at some point. Um, so I guess, I yeah, I was just curious about like, how this is being marketed to individual consumers and why people would, would buy it. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think today the reality is, and maybe not the marketing reality, but the reality is that this result is almost exclusively a research use tool. That the knowledge of whether or not you have antibodies is not something that you should use to change your behavior. And it's, except in very rare circumstances, not something that a clinician is going to use to determine the course of your treatment. This is a, a research question as we figure out how close it is to that uh, immunity passport ideal. How protective are antibodies? How uh, clear is it that you have protective antibodies if you have any antibodies? And how long does that protection last? Those three questions I think are still um, outstanding. So kind of the 
the main point or the the take home message from this was to see how good <laughs> how good the antibody tests were and in your paper you talk about kind of two different measures and i think that it's important to go over both so one you talk about is um the specificity of the test and um the other one would be what i think some people would call sensitivity but you um uh, referred to as percent positivity. Can you talk about how these tests actually did in terms of their specificity and how they did in terms of their um, sensitivity and, and what the difference between those two measures is? Yeah, so I mean, the data coming out of all of this was um, surprisingly, unsurprisingly variable. Um, we were testing 12 different kits, um, or I guess 11 kits, and then one that was adapted from Florian Kramer's lab in, in New York. Um, but, you know, one of the things that we really focused on initially was specificity, right? So this is um, four tests that we are quite confident are truly negative because we gathered this blood from before 2018, before SARS-CoV-2 is known to exist. Um, we really shouldn't see any of those specimens test positive by these kits. And so if we're seeing positive um, signal coming off of these tests, that's something that's wrong and bad. And, and we need to know about that. And, um, and actually, quite a few of the tests were very specific. Um, one of them was 100% specific. Many were in the 98, 99% specific. Um, there was variability. Some are dropping into the 80s, the high 80s. But, um, but again, thinking about the, the state of the world and of the United States in particular, when we were actually doing this work, this was talk about immune passports. If you do one of these tests and you have, uh, it says that you're positive, um, then you can go back to work and you're safe and you're good to go. And, and that never actually came to fruition, but we wanted to make sure that if we're kind of rubber stamping these tests and saying like, you know, we checked these out and they seem to be pretty good. Someone goes and takes it. They don't have antibodies, but the test for whatever reason tells them they do that they don't go and put themselves in a compromising position and, and end up getting sick and, and something really terrible happening. So, so like, um, so 100% specificity would mean none of the tests that should for sure be negative came up positive, meaning exactly. they never came up with a false positive. Exactly. All right. And then some of the tests, it seems like upwards of over 10% of them would come up as positives. Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Some of them would just kind of light up here and there. And, um, and sometimes it was consistent across tests, which specimens would, would give these false positive results. Um, it wasn't always consistent across tests. And so um, there's a lot that could be there. But that was specificity. Overall, some tests were very specific. Some tests were less specific. Um, but the data are. and. But yeah. an antibody test, because of this issue, so some of them have better specificity than others. Like the positive antibody test, like you were saying, does not necessarily translate to a an immunity passport. If 15% of the time it can just be randomly positive, that means that 15% of people who test positive think that they are immune when they aren't. And so that's quite a high percent if you're, you know, behaving as if you can't infect other people or be infected. So definitely. Um, I, I also want to reaffirm the fact that like 
even if you have positive antibodies and we know that for 100% certainty, you also shouldn't be going around coughing in your friends' faces, you know, like there's still baseline precautions that we should be taking until we know everything that's possible about this, this, this infection. But, um, but yeah, certainly, you know, we, we really wanted to make sure that the information was correct and that, um, if it, the test says that you have antibodies, then you really truly have antibodies. And we saw that some tests seem to do that well and others don't do that quite as well. Maybe you guys could talk about the actual um, sensitivity or percent positivity of these tests and how well they did compared to each other. How many of them seem like they were accurately identifying people with antibodies and how many of them missed people that had antibodies? So some of them were very good and some of them were less good. But but really, I think what what we were after was not use this test. The thing that we really wanted to do was um, draw attention to the fact that without the the kind of validation that the FDA usually does, that that the results we got were, were heterogeneous. And that meant that as a consumer, you had absolutely no ability to say um, whether or not the result you got was meaningful. And, um, and, and I think that message really got across in a couple of ways. Um, there was really, we were very fortunate to have good news coverage. Apoorva Mandavilli at the, uh, the New York Times did a great story where she even was able to find folks who had purchased really large lots of some of the tests that weren't quite as good uh, and got their response, which I, I thought was really uh, illuminating. Um, and, and as a result of this coverage, actually, uh, the federal government started looking into this as well. And um, so rather than us having to to crown individual tests, what we got was buy-in from a, a federal centralized place from the NCI and the FDA, who really took on this challenge in a very uh, concerted and organized and serious way and said, okay, this really is a problem. Doing this testing is really non-trivial. And so we need somebody who has access to the samples and who has the sophisticated method- methodology to do it carefully. And they really took over this project in an amazing way. Um, and that, I think, was was the outcome that we wanted to measure, was not uh, what's the best, but how are they doing in aggregate? And is this um, marketing and regulatory scheme working for the American consumer? And so I, I think the, the biggest result we got was that it just wasn't working, that it was important to get those tests out there. And uh, I'm absolutely sympathetic with the decisions that were made. But the result was that um, these tests were not trustworthy across the board. And so the important research that was being done, the ability of people to learn about their own uh, serostatus and their own history with infection was compromised. Um, and, and that's what we were able to report. And I think that uh, was really taken to heart by decision makers and uh, led to a change in policy that means that today, if you're getting a, a test, it is... Uh, approved by the FDA under, you know, emergency authorization. Am I getting that right, Jeff? That So it's not quite the same kind of authorization that a normal test might go through, but we can have a lot more confidence in these products than we could have back in March when we really uh, uh, started this undertaking. So Joe, you said that one of the companies had uh, reached out to you and said that was version one. Now we have version 50, let's say. Has, and to your knowledge, has that been the same with all the companies that you tested, or, or where are those companies with those kits at today? 
Yeah, so so you can look at our very small results on covidtestingproject.org, and, and then you can look at the same page from the FDA. If you look up FDA EUA, which stands for Emergency Use Authorization, you can actually find the list of all of the tests that they've done, they've gone through. And, and if version one failed, uh, you'll actually see on the website often, uh, product was retracted by the manufacturer. And then you'll scroll down and you'll see, oh, the same manufacturer has another test with a slightly different brand name. And now this one passed because this one is good and they've been able to take this feedback and criticism from the FDA and, and create a better product that's doing better service for uh, you know, folks who are, are buying it, for the consumer and for the clinical folks. Um, and and in, so that's where you'll see it. The FDA has really done an amazing job being transparent with their testing and publishing those results. Um, and they're, they're all available online. I was going to ask one last question, but now I'm like, maybe I'll, I'll ask it and we'll end up cutting it just because I think it's um, fairly controversial, but it's the question that um, I get asked a lot. And I think that uh, maybe we just go on the record as telling people that it's unknown. But um, one of the questions that I get asked all the time, I think, is, like once you test positive, how long are you immune for? So, you know, if you've had the virus or you have antibodies, you know, how long is your immunity going to last? And it's such a hard question to answer. Um, yeah, I mean, so so we don't know, but there's a really good reason that we don't know, right? How old is this virus, right? Like maybe November 2019, December 2019, something like that, right? So that means that if we could find the very first human who had gotten SARS-CoV-2, the maximum we could possibly tell you about immunity is nine months, <laughs> right? In the scale of immunity, like, you know, not that impressive. Right. It feels like it's been a thousand years, but it's not been that long. <laughs> yeah, exactly. John Oliver calls it time soup, and I really love that term. <laughs> it hasn't even, it's been like barely six months. Like, not even, really. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so so I think it's important to remember that there's an experiment that's running, essentially, mm -hmm. right? That the first wave of people who are unlucky enough to be infected uh, are... are who survived. Uh, who survived uh, are the um, unfortunate guinea pigs here, mm. where we're only going to know the immunity when we start to see those folks get unluckily exposed again. Mm. Uh and, and that's going to start to give us a picture of, of the immunity in a um, more concrete way. I think there's been a lot of incredible scholarship already on the level of antibodies that people are getting after different kinds of infections and, and what other factors can modulate how much antibody you have. But, but ultimately, we still don't understand the question, how much antibody do you need to be protected? Uh, and how long is that going to last? And, and I think the only way we're going to start to get those answers is through the unfortunate natural experiment of, of waiting and seeing. Um, and then fortunately, uh, knock wood, we're going to start to have vaccine candidates on the market, and they're also going to elicit antibodies. Uh, but again, you know, how long does the vaccine work, right? Well, I get my booster for my chickenpox vaccine every 10-ish years, right? So that means we'll know that uh, SARS-CoV-2 immunity lasts a decade, possibly, in 2029 right so mm. for the folks who are who are really wanting to know today you know maybe we could tell you about like a how immune a mouse is or even a, a <laughs> macaque but 
uh, at the end of the day, that's not the information you want. It's it's how about me? Uh, and we can't know that until it's it's yeah. been that long, unfortunately. And uh, this virus, I think, has been fairly tricky uh, in a lot of regards in that I, I think it hasn't always behaved the way that we've expected. It, like the number of asymptomatic carriers was... I think surprising to a lot of people. So uh, new viruses are new. <laughs> like, we don't know anything about them yet. Um, this is why some of us are scientists, <laughs> to try to figure out new things. Yeah. And thank goodness. <laughs> so Jacqueline, yeah. Lauren, how did we do? Do you feel like you understood what, what our project was? Yes. Yeah, and I enjoyed hearing about it a lot. Thank you for joining us today in the final episode of our COVID-19 mini-series. We hope you join us next time when we goof around a bit and have some fun asking and answering questions from Science Earth. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who is doing their part to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the virus. Thank you to everyone who is doing their part in remembering to wash your hands, and keeping up social distancing, and wearing your mask when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, so thank you so much for doing what you can to help. We hope that our podcast can be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our role as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But in case we didn't do this, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, and we'll do our best to respond. And if you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Nevin Krogan, who is our boss and the director of QBI, and we want to thank UCSF and Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. I want to thank Joe, Cody, and Jeff for helping me discuss this paper, and a special thanks to our guests and friends and all-around awesome human beings, Jacqueline and Lauren. Thank you to Alexa Roport and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. What's a good, like, cue for, yeah. Um... Uh, do you want me to like requeue you? It, well, is is there a cue for you to like know that I screwed up and I want to like retalk? No, 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 no. Just go ahead. We'll we'll just cut it. Yeah, right. <laughs> no worries. There's a lot of times where you don't know, if... know that you've screwed up and then I cut it later. <laughs> um... it happens to me a lot. <laughs> I listen to myself. I'm like, oh, that was bad. No, nope, that's got to go. <laughs> also, Google Translate when we play this for Google or transcript always says like Scooby Doo, like it. Doesn't know SARS-CoV-2? Yeah, so it, like, transcribes it as Scooby-Doo or Scooby-Doo 2, and then it's like, oh, gosh. That's incredible. Yeah. It's my, my favorite is, yeah, seeing how Google thinks that <laughs> what we say. Um, but, okay, thank you very much. Uh, this was great, honestly. <laughs>